How many here would eat the cookies? <laughs> See, they were honest in the front row, at least. There are so many situations in life where doing the right thing, um, even though it might be clear, is not always the easiest thing to do. And uh, I thought that video portrayed that quite well. It's a beautiful summer morning that we've been able to gather here, and it's nice to be able to see a couple of those who have been working at camp this past week uh, join us for church this morning. Mitchell and Caden are in the back row there. You guys have been working at camp these past weeks. How have things been going? Great? Good. Glad to hear that. And we've been praying for you. Who Who else here has been working at camp? I think Karen's in the back row. And who's your, who's your friend? Michaela. Michaela. Great to have you here, Michaela. Yeah, it's great to have you here worshiping with us this morning. And uh, yeah, we hope that you know that we're praying for you and supporting you as you work at camp. And even as you're maybe a little sleep deprived this morning, thank you for being here. That's, that's great that you are. This morning we're going to be continuing in our series, Living Hope for a Dying World, and looking at part two. God's provision for holiness. Would you bow with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your provisions for us. We thank you, Lord, that you have provided a way for us to live holy lives in a world that has, by and large, rejected you. And so, Father, we thank you that even as we saw in this short video, that every time we are confronted with temptation to do something unholy, that when we think of you and we look to you, you will provide a way. And so we pray, Lord, that this morning you would remind us of that as we hear your word, that in each situation you have a provision for us to make the right decision to live holy lives for you. And so we pray, Lord, that you would bless your word to that end this morning. We also want to remember to pray for uh, all those who are working at Bible camps uh, this summer, and we pray for those in our congregation who are doing so We thank you for them, for their commitment, Lord, to love and to serve you and to take on the challenging job of working at camp. And so we just pray your blessing upon them, Lord. We pray that you would give them um, much wisdom, that you would equip them with everything that they need. We pray that you would give them patience, especially when working with some of the more difficult campers. And we pray, Lord, that you would just be with them, speak through them into these young campers' lives, and just uh, use them that they would see your love and feel your love through them. And so we thank you for this ministry that we can be a part of as a church. We pray your blessing upon it, Lord. Uh, We thank you again for what you have in store for us this morning. And so we ask that you would speak to our hearts by your Holy Spirit. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to begin this morning by sharing with you a story. The story goes that a man flew into Chicago. He hired a taxi to take him downtown. Now, I'm not quite sure what was taking him to downtown Chicago. Maybe not the safest place to be, but nonetheless, he's taking a taxi to downtown Chicago, and as he's riding along, they come upon a red light. But instead of hitting the brakes, the taxi driver hits the gas and punches right through the red light. The man calls out, Hey, that was a red light. You're supposed to stop. To which the driver replied, Yeah, I know, but my brother does it all the time. Soon they came to a second red light, and again, instead of hitting the brake, he punches the gas, and they cruise right through this red light. Again, the passenger says, Whoa, that was another red light. You are going to get us killed. Why don't you just stop? And again, the driver laughed it off and said, 
Don't worry about it. My brother does the exact same thing all the time. Well, they continue driving, and this time they come upon a green light. And as they come up to the green light, instead of hitting the gas, the taxi driver hits the brake and comes to a screeching halt in front of the green light. Now the man is completely confused, and he says to the driver, Okay, what is up? Now the light is green. It's time to go. Why don't you go on through? To which the driver replied, I know it's green, but you never know when my brother might be coming through. Talk about living in an upside-down world. I think that's a great illustration of how our world seems to operate a lot of the time. We see people going through on red lights, doing things that they shouldn't be doing, and when they come upon a green light doing something that they should be doing, they stop short. Everything has been reversed. Everything is upside-down. A world where what's up is down, what's wrong is right. A world where those who honor God are ridiculed and those who deny Him are praised. Confusing, I know. And yet this is so much of the world that we live in today. And incredibly, the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans of the ancient world described the world of our time nearly 2,000 years later almost perfectly. If you want to turn there with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1... Let's listen to Paul's description of the world in Roman times and see how it mirrors the world in our times. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. Listen to what Paul writes. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. You know, the culture in which we live today is not lacking in knowledge about God. We have the knowledge of God. In fact, we have an abundance of the knowledge of God all around us. There is no suppression of the truth about God in our culture today. It is as accessible as a click of the mouse on your computer and, and opening up a Bible of which we have complete access to. There's no lack of knowledge in our world today. And so if our culture rejects God, it is not a rejection out of ignorance... It is a willful rejection, just as it was for the Romans. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. And so we see that happening today. And what is the consequence of this type of behavior? He continues in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of the heart to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. As we look at the trends in our culture over the past number of decades, is it any coincidence, is it any wonder that the theory of evolution, which at its core is a denial of the Creator, led to God being removed from our public school system? We see those two things being linked very closely together. As we move on from there, is it any coincidence that once God was removed from our public school system, no prayer, no mention of God in the curriculum, this led to another step and the so-called sexual revolution, which ushered us into an era where now sex education is teaching young people that having premarital sex was and is fine so long as you are responsible and use protection. One teenager just recently told me how this past school season, 
one entire gym class, and you would normally think gym class would be devoted to, you know, maybe playing basketball or running laps or doing something exercise-related, but no, an entire gym class had been devoted to talking about sex, playing an STD game, and then at the conclusion of which, free birth control and condoms were distributed amongst the young people. And in case you were unaware, these are things not happening in a distant land. These are things happening in our own community. And so as we think of this, we think this is pretty bad, but it doesn't end there, does it? Sin always leads to ever-increasing brokenness. You see, sin is not something that you give in to one level and it stays there. No, when you give in to one level of sin, it always leads to the next level and the next level. And it continues to sink in a downward direction. And we see that happening, that cumulative effect of giving into sin one stage at a time happening in our society today, just as Paul described in the ancient Roman world. And he continues on this downward cycle. Verse 26. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind and to do what ought not to be done. I believe that the day has come where we can unequivocally say that God has given our culture over to a depraved mind. This is no longer talking about individuals who struggle with or are caught up in a particular sin. We all struggle with different sins on a daily basis, and so to to call one sin worse than another is not what this is about. This is about the time when a culture embraces a sinful behavior and a way of life as something good and promotes it. This is what we are talking about when it says God gives them over to a depraved mind. And so here, something that God calls wrong, shameful, even perverted, in our world it is praised and called good and promoted as something to be proud of. In fact, a few weeks ago, the so-called Pride Week celebrations around much of the Western world happened, and I'm sure you were aware of these things in various ways. Without even needing to say what people are supposed to be proud of, we already know. We see a rainbow flag flying, and we don't need to wonder what it's for. Our culture, of which we are a part, has already been systematically and thoroughly educated as to what that flag, that rainbow flag, symbolizes. During Pride Week, mayors in every major Canadian city attend Pride Parades. Uh, Corporations fly giant rainbow-colored flags over their headquarters. Starbucks being one of them, a giant 200-square-foot rainbow flag flying over their headquarters in Seattle. Those flags also flew over many city halls. Burger King even released a special Pride Burger. Nabisco, the makers of Teddy Graham crackers and the Oreo cookies, are running television commercials today depicting family units with two mums or two dads with the tagline, This is Wholesome. This is wholesome. Calling something wholesome that God calls wrong, indecent. My friends, as we consider these things, it's safe to say that we are living in the last days of a dying world. A world that is in desperate need of the living hope that can only be found in Jesus Christ. It is only once Jesus opens the eyes of a heart, opens the ears so that someone can hear the truth, that they see the lies of the world for what they are. 
Because the world is very good at slowly but surely indoctrinating us to believing that what they are saying is true and right and good, even if the Bible says the complete opposite. And we as Christians have to be on guard because we as well are under the influence of this same culture. And we as well can very easily slide into what the world is saying is right and good and forget about the Word of God. And so today we need to be sure of what we believe as we live within this culture. And to be perfectly honest with you, I'm tired of having to even talk about these things. I wish that I wouldn't even have to bring these things up. But I must. I have to. I'm compelled to. I tried to not this Sunday, and God just laid it on my heart again. Because these things are not going away. They are only increasing. And so as Christians, we must not only be aware of what's happening in the culture around us, but we must know what we believe. We must be firm upon the truth of God's word so that we can stand and not falter and fall away. And so this requires intentional discipline on our parts to be equipped and graciously willing to show a dying world. That same world that is falling into error and lies, we must be ready to sacrificially reach out and find those people and love those people and show them that there is a different way. Because it's so easy to stand back in judgment and say, look, you've got it all wrong and we're the ones who've got it all right and we're going to put up walls between us. But no, no, no. Jesus says the exact opposite. Look at, how, look at how quickly they're falling away. Rip apart those walls. Get them out of the way and go out and find them. Show them my love. Bring them back into my care under my way of life. That is the most loving thing we could possibly do. But my friends, in order to be able to do that, we must be sure of what we believe so that we can explain it in a way that is winsome, in a way that is full of grace and truth. And this is what we are talking about this morning. In order to do this, we must purpose in our hearts to be like Jesus. You know, that's a big statement, to purpose in our hearts to be like Jesus. You know, we sing all these songs, we sang some wonderful hymns this morning with truths so profound. When you really stop and think about it, it makes you shake a little bit what we're actually singing. You know, to purpose in our hearts to be like Jesus is a big statement, because what kind of a life did Jesus live? Did he live one of holy segregation from the world around him? No. He lived a perfectly holy life right in the middle of the culture and the world around him. He, he lived right in the middle of the places that people said, what is he doing there? There's drunkards and sinners and wine-bibbers and, and prostitutes there. What is he doing there? And yet we know Jesus lived his life so perfectly that he was in the middle of those places that everyone said was the worst possible place he could be, and yet he remained pure, holy, and he was the one who was influencing them and not the other way. But my friends, to be like Jesus means we can't just go into those situations unprepared, unequipped. No, we must go into them with the power of God and his word firmly planted in our hearts. And so we purpose to be like Jesus and then, like Jesus, we must be willing to suffer so that others can hear the truth. We must be willing to suffer so that others may believe and receive that living hope for themselves. And remember from last week that hidden in every trial is God's provision for our ultimate good. And so as we go out into the world, as we bring this love 
into a dying world to bring living hope, we must be prepared to suffer. We must be prepared that there's going to be pushback, that not everything's going to go our way all the time. In fact, we are assured that it won't by Jesus himself. And yet, even as we acknowledge that, we remember that trials, God allows them for our ultimate good. And so now, as we consider this aspect of being holy in an unholy world, how can we be used by God to usher the living hope of Jesus into a dying world? How can we be holy? Well, being holy begins with a conscious decision. We must desire holiness. Holiness is not just something that just happens all on its own. It's something that we set our minds, we purpose in our hearts that we are going to pursue holiness. And this is what Peter has done, and this is what Peter lays out for us. If you turn there with me, we'll be spending the remainder of our time in the book of 1 Peter in chapter 1. Verses 15 to 16, listen to what Peter says. Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. This is a lofty statement. And you've got to remember the source of this statement. It's coming from Peter. It's coming from the guy who denied Jesus three times. It's coming from the guy who so often got things wrong, and yet now he is saying to be holy as our Heavenly Father is holy. Holiness is not a term that we use all that much within the church anymore, especially not in the culture around us. Some people are afraid of the word because it sounds too holy, <laughs> for lack of a better term. Right? You don't just go around saying things like, you know, I'm trying to be holy today, or, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be holier today. Um, you should try to be holier today. See how that one goes over. Just try throwing that someone's way. You know, in fact, that gets upon the fact that we use the word holy almost as a negative term, because we will describe someone as being holier than thou. And what we mean by that statement is we're saying that their attitude is such that they are condescending towards people. They are holier than thou and looking down their noses at others. But once again, this is not what holiness means within Scripture. At its most basic level, the word holy refers to the condition of being set apart. Set apart. Holiness is to be set apart, separated from others and unto something else. It is a word whose highest meaning is found in referring to God. That God is holy, he is higher, he is set apart from us because he is perfect in every way. He is holy. And therefore the Bible repeatedly refers to him as the holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. Three times holy, emphasizing the perfection of his holiness. And so holiness being set apart, something that has been purified and set apart to someone else to be used in their service. And so in, pr in principle, holiness is what all of us would expect when we turn on the faucet, when we order a meal at a restaurant, or when we take off muddy shoes going into the house. You see, we expect our water, we expect our food and our homes to be set apart, to be kept clean for our use and for our health. This um, principle was in view when, in the 1860s, Russian scientists had done a study of the water supply in St. Petersburg. And so they moved the water supply or recommended that it be moved because what was happening was the untreated sewage 
which flowed into the Neva River only a few hundred yards upstream from the intake pipes for the city's drinking water. So raw sewage is being pumped upstream a few hundred yards from where they're pulling the water in to drink. Great setup, I know. And so this is what was happening in the 1860s, 1860s in St. Petersburg. So they recommended to the city, you need to rework your waterworks, you need to rework your sewer system because this is just terrible. Everyone's getting sick from the water. However, in 1992, 130 years later, environmentalists visited the city of 5 million people and they were shocked to find the situation had not changed. Residents routinely continued to boil the brownish-yellow water that came from their taps. Many strained their water through cheesecloth before drinking it. Unboiled, the water contained toxic bacteria that caused diarrhea, stomach cramps, and nausea. Consider this. Holiness is like clean water that has been set aside and purified for our use. Purposing to be holy means we want to have all of those contaminants of the world not spouting directly into our lives. Because if it is, holiness is not attainable. We need to have our our lives set apart just as the water should have been set apart. The term saint sounds different from the word holy, and yet the word saint comes from the same root word as holy. In biblical terms, a saint is a person whom God has set apart for himself. So basically, calling someone a saint is to say that they are a holy person. Now, of course, we've come to think of saints as those within the Roman Catholic Church, St. Peter, St. Paul, and we think of those as somehow elevated from the rest of us. And yet, saints are not just to be honored people of the past. In fact, the Apostle Paul points out that all of Christians, all who have been set apart by Jesus Christ, are saints. They include real-life, down-to-earth, common people who have been set apart by God for God. And so today, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a saint. You are set apart by God unto God. You are his special possession and receivers of his special favor. So all who know Christ are called saints. More than that, you are also called his children. Children are set apart from those who are not children. There is a separation between those who are in the family and those who are out of the family. And so here we see that for those who do not know God as Savior, who do not know Him as Father, they are not on the inside in the family, they are on the outside. And so there is a set-apart nature of being part of God's family from those who are on the outside. And so in a hopeless and sin-filled world, we are set apart by God as saints, as children, as an example, to be witnesses to this world of a different way, God's way. Holiness is not only what God wants from us, it's what he expects from us. And why does God expect holiness from us? It's really quite simple. He wants his children to be like him. You know, who here are dads today who have that inner desire to have your children, especially if you have sons, that as a father you want your son to be like you in some way? And that there's a part of you inside that feels this, this pride when you see your son taking after you in one of maybe your better traits, let's say. And so there's this desire, a natural desire, as a father, as a mother, as a parent, to say, I want my children to be like me. 
And God has identified himself to us as our father, and he wants us, his children, to be like him. You know, the other day I was half-heartedly attempting to watch a World Cup soccer game. It was tough going, and I wasn't really all that tuned into the action, but, you know, it's the World Cup. It comes around every four years, so I try to tune in a little bit so I know what's going on. And as I'm sitting on the couch watching this soccer match, I think the score was 0-0, pretty sure it was, Declan saunters into the room, wanders over to the couch, sits down beside me, sees what's on TV, looks up at me and says, Daddy, we watch baseball? (laughs) Now, you have no idea how words like that are just music to my ears. You know, it it just gives you that little thrill when my son has become interested, even in a small way, in something that I am interested in. And so my son wanting to watch baseball rather than soccer is something that, in a small way, gives me this this little thrill that my son is taking an interest in something that I'm interested in. He's becoming just a little bit more like me. As scary as that sounds. And this is why Peter introduces the statement on holiness in verse 14 with this phrase. I want to point it out for you. In verse 14, he introduces this phrase, As obedient children, as obedient children, do not conform any longer to the desires you once had when you lived in ignorance. When you lived in sin, those are the desires you had before. But now, as obedient children, don't conform any longer. As obedient children, become like your father. Have his interests become your interests. Have his heart become your heart. Be holy because your father is holy. This is something that we must set our hearts upon. Something we must pursue. And so our Father says to us, I want you to be like me, son. I want you to be like me, daughter. Be holy, because I am holy. And so now the question becomes, how do we even begin that process? How do we become holy? How can I be set apart by God and for God? Well, thankfully, Peter has some very practical advice for us within this passage. Verse 18 Here's what Peter writes. For you know that it was not with perishable things like gold or silver that you were redeemed from the empty ways of life handed down from you, handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope Are in God. The first step to holiness is coming to the cross of Jesus Christ. In order to become holy, we must first be redeemed, meaning to be set free from sin. But this redemption, this being set free, cannot be purchased or earned, Peter says. It can only be achieved by the shedding of innocent blood. And for over 2,000 years, the nation of Israel would repeatedly select a perfect lamb. They would examine it to see if there was any blemishes or defects. And if there was, it didn't qualify. It needed to be perfect. It needed to be unblemished, without spot or defect. And this lamb, 
would become the sacrifice for the nation. The lamb would be placed upon the altar. It would be sacrificed there in that place, the high priest cutting its throat and taking the blood and sprinkling it upon the posts of each side of the altar. And then those who were assembled that day, the blood would be sprinkled upon them symbolically, saying, this blood has now covered for your sin. This lamb has died in your place. And your sin has been atoned. You have been set free from the condemnation thereof. And so we see this was repeated again and again and again. For 2,000 years, the shedding of blood in the place of the people so that the sins could be atoned for and forgiven. But each one of those lambs that was slain was only a foreshadowing of the perfect lamb that was to come. Because Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment, the perfect lamb, the perfect life, sent from the Father in perfect obedience to the Father. And Jesus became the sacrificial lamb of all people for all time. His blood so powerful, so precious, that it still atones for the sins that are committed today. Blood that was shed on Calvary's hill almost 2,000 years ago is still powerful enough that it is atoning for sin committed today, even by us. That is how powerful the precious blood of Jesus Christ is that it is still powerful enough to cover and atone for the sin of any person today who confesses their sin, repents of it, and asks God for that forgiveness. And today, if you haven't taken that first step, today could be the day where you change that. You see, Jesus' atoning blood and forgiveness is available to each one of us right now, this very moment. It is readily available. And this is the first step to holiness. We must come to Jesus Christ. Holiness can come in no other way. It cannot be bought. It cannot be worked for. It must simply be received by what Jesus has already done. So let Jesus deal with your sins, both past and present, and take that first step to be holy unto God, to be set apart for him. The second step that Peter draws out for us in this passage is in verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Prepare your minds for action, he says. Spiritual warfare is primarily fought in the battleground of the mind. Did you know that? We so often think of spiritual warfare as being something external, something that is done to us. And yet, most of the warfare happens within the confines of our minds. And that is why Peter says, prepare your minds for action. The literal translation of this phrase, which is given in the King James Version, actually says, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, this phrase sounds completely strange to us, to gird up the loins of our mind. What does that mean? It's an obsolete phrase, so let me explain it for you. The phrase, gird up your loins, is a metaphor referring to the ancient oriental custom of tying one's loose-flowing robes into your belt in the process of getting ready for intense activity. So remember, they weren't wearing pants, they're wearing long flowing robes. So if you've got robes coming down to here, and you try to run, it's going to get tripped up. So what they would do is they would get those robes, they would hike them up, it looked kind of funny, and they'd tuck them up into their belt. So you've got robes tucked up here, but now your legs are free, and you can run. So this expression, gird up your loins, means get ready for action. Get ready to run, get ready for activity. 
So just imagine if, if you had to go around and you had these long flowing robes and you had to tuck them up into your belt. <laughs> Not exactly dignified. And in fact, in that culture, if someone did that, it was extremely undignified. Running for a man in that culture was undignified. It was only something you would do in a time of extreme duress, if there was intense activity that needed to happen or a battle to be fought. And so using this metaphor of just getting down to business, today we would say, roll up your sleeves and get to work. It's a similar expression to what, to what Peter is using here. And so let me ask you today, what do you need to do to prepare your mind for action? What do you need to do to gird up your loins, to roll up your sleeves so that your mind, your mental capacity, is prepared for action? What do you need to do? What do you need to get out of the way so that you're not tripped up? So that when the time comes that you need to start running, when you need to start doing, you're not going to trip over your robes and do a face plant. What needs to be removed from your life? What obstacle... Do you need to get out of the way? Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 says, Let us lay aside every weight that hinders the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race that is set out before us. You know, is there anything hanging around the edges of your life that is slowing you down or that could trip you up today? What kind of sins are lingering in your life? What kind of things are impeding your, pro- your progress? Peter says of those things, get rid of them. If you're going to be prepared for action, you can't have anything that's going to slow you down. Weights that are going to hinder your progress. Get rid of these things. Peter says, get them out of the way. Let's take our Christian lives seriously. Let's take God seriously when he says, be holy. You can't play at holiness and think you're going to get there. You have to take this seriously. And whatever we do... We have to pursue it with all of our hearts, with all of our mights, with all of our strength. We have to get our minds completely right. We have to get them completely focused on Him and what He wants for us. Because you see, while a soldier prepares his physical body and equipment for action, a Christian must prepare their mind. And the reason is that every temptation, attack, or trial you will ever face will be processed by your mind. No matter what way the temptation hits you, what the scenario is, we saw a couple on the video with the children's feature a couple minutes ago. Whatever it is, you see them in that moment of decision, they're processing the information in their minds. A simple example of this would be in the area of eating a healthy diet. Suppose that you've made up your mind to start eating only healthy food. You're... you're 100% dedicated to it. You've made your goals, you've made your list, you know what you're going to eat, you've bought the food, and on the first day of your new eating healthy food diet, you open up the fridge door to grab a quick snack from your veggie platter, and your spouse has placed a McCain's Deep and Delicious chocolate cake right beside the veggie platter. Temptation. Right? At this point, you are confronted with a decision, a choice. Your mind is instantly processing this new information. It has already stored away the information that you were not going to eat chocolate cake. You were going to eat healthy. However, the new information is telling you that A, the cake looks delicious. B, your past experience is reminding you that it is delicious. 
and see the cake is readily available. Instant gratification. And so now your mind has to process this in a matter of seconds and come up with a decision. Veggie platter or chocolate cake layered in an inch of creamy, delicious icing. Oh, I'm starting to drool a little bit. I apologize. You know, if your mind wasn't prepared for this temptation, if you weren't mentally tough enough to deal with this this new temptation, this unexpected thing, then I, I assure you, you are guaranteed to take a piece of that cake. And it won't take much justification either. All it will take is that age-old lie, just this one time. Then I will really start eating healthy tomorrow. Just this one time. And now we already know that what's good for us in the long term is to eat healthy. But if our minds have been conditioned to pursue short-term gratification over what is good for us in the long term, then we will enter every last battle of our lives unprepared and set up to fail. When tested by peer pressure, you will give in and go with the crowd because it's easier in the short term. You haven't geared up your mind to, to take the long road, to say, this is going to be harder in the short term, but in the long term, this is what's right. This is what's going to build my character. And so when faced with taking a shortcut by cheating, rather than putting in the hard work, you will cheat. You see, we must recognize that our flesh is pre-programmed to take the path of least resistance, the one that looks easiest, most appetizing, most fun. And knowing this, we must prepare our minds in advance to take action, which leads us to Peter's next practical instruction. Be self-controlled. He says, prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled. Self-control literally means that you are in complete control of every aspect of yourself. Are you in complete control of every aspect of yourself? This includes your thoughts, your emotions, your speech, and your actions. Those are the four things that encompass everything about your personal self. Are you in complete control of those four things? Thoughts, emotions, speech, and action. You see, when someone exercises self-control, no negative influence can get them to do or say something that they know isn't good or right. And they can say no to the lure of instant gratification. Putting self-control into action is the outcome of having prepared your mind. So when you see the chocolate cake, but you reach for the veggie platter, that's self-control. When someone slanders you, but you refuse to gossip about them in return, that's self-control. When someone makes fun of your faith, when someone makes fun of you going to church, you bite your tongue and you speak kindly in reply. That is self-control. When the popular friend says, hey, come to the party Saturday night, and you say, no, I'm going to youth group, that's self-control. Men, when a beautiful, scantily clad woman walks by and you look the other way, that is self-control. And women, when you know that showing more of yourself will get more attention, but you choose to dress modestly, that is self-control. The list goes on and on and on. But we see how important self-control is in the pursuit of holiness. When you're tired on Sunday morning and you want to hit that snooze button and just roll over and go back to sleep, but you get up and go to church anyways, that is self-control as well. 
Same goes for reading your Bible. Same goes for dedicating time to prayer. Same goes for anything good in your life that you would rather do something else. This is exercising self-control. And this is what God has given us to pursue holiness as he is holy. There are thousands of more examples I could give. But remember this. For every temptation, God has given us a promise in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You see, overcoming temptation requires mental preparation in advance and self-control in the moment to look for that way of escape that God has provided. It's not a matter of if he's provided it. He has provided it. Are you going to look for it? Are you going to seek that way of escape that he has provided, knowing that no matter what, it will always be there. We can count on it. That is God's promise. So in conclusion today, I want to ask you, do you want to be like your Heavenly Father? If that answer is yes, then let me challenge you. Pursue holiness. Pursue being like your Father, who says, be holy because I am holy. This is what he desires for each one of us. And so if that is your desire then allow Jesus to deal with your sins, both past and present. Only his blood can do that. Only his death on your behalf can atone for your sins to set you free from them and their power. Allow Jesus to do that. Secondly, prepare your minds for action. Don't just just sit there empty-headed. Fill your minds with good things. Joyce Myers always says that. Don't just sit there empty-headed. Fill your mind with good things. Focus on the things of God's word. Fill your mind with things that are good and pure and noble. Prepare your minds for action. And then be self-controlled. Exercise it in the moment. It is the only way you can strengthen that muscle is to be self-controlled when the temptation comes. Reach for the veggie platter. Do the, the thing that you know is going to be good for you in the long run. And God will continue to be with you and to mold you more and more into his image, the image of holiness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not just put an unattainable call upon us. It seems unattainable to to hear a statement so huge as to say, be holy because you are holy. We just kind of sigh and say it's impossible. And yet you would not give us something that was impossible because you have made provision for us to attain holiness. You have given us the atoning blood, the atoning work of your Son, the Lord Jesus. And through him, Lord, all of this is attainable. And so we thank you for that. We thank you for your Son. We thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. And we thank you that you rose from the grave to live a new life, that we in you can have this living hope every single day. We pray, Lord, that you would increase our ability, Lord, to be self-controlled when temptation comes. Help us to fill our minds with that which is good and pure, the truths of your word, so that when the time of testing comes in the world around us that seems to be ever falling into ways that are apart from you, Lord, we pray that you would equip us for that day, that we would not just sit idle and allow the world to mold us into its image, but that we would diligently pursue holiness to be molded into your image. So we pray, Lord, that you would bless this church to become more like you, that we would be increasing in holiness, set apart by you and for you. 
And thank you, God, that you are even now this morning doing that work in our hearts today. I pray, Lord, that we would make tangible decisions as we leave here to cut away those things that are distracting us, that would trip us up. And that, Lord, as you search our hearts, you know our sin. Even by your Holy Spirit right now, I know you are speaking to hearts to say, you know what, you need to give that up. You need to give that over to me. You need to recommit yourself to pursuing holiness. And so, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, as you are laying conviction on people's hearts right now, I pray that you would as well give the power to follow through. And so, Father, I pray for that self-control for each person here today, that they would follow through on whatever it is that you are asking them in this moment. That, Lord, we would together increase in holiness. For your glory, we pray this in Jesus' name.